Good questions for that series. Uh, what else? I think that covers it. So if you guys can turn to your, in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. It'll take us a little bit to get there though. And we started a new series on emotion called Feel. I'll be honest with you, I've never heard a series in the church done on emotion. And so about four years ago, I decided I want to do a series on emotion eventually with high schoolers. And it took me four years to get the nerve to actually do it. And uh, so here we are uh, starting this series. And I want to just kind of review the last few weeks, uh, actually the last week with you, um, and cover some things today that we covered last week. I want to remind you, though, when I say emotion, I'm not talking about just crying all the time. I know whenever someone says the word emotion, that's what you picture in your mind is someone just getting real emotional physically and crying. I want to explain what I mean, especially to the guys. I know the guys tend to check out of this kind of talk because they're, they're thinking this is a talk for the ladies, you know, and really it's a talk for everyone. Uh, but what I mean by emotion, it's a lot more than just getting emotional through crying. It's a lot more than that. Um, recently, <clears throat> I was at the back of the church in the main building, and there was a guy that I know, and I just walked up and said, hey, I said, how you doing? And one of those casual, just how you doing conversations. And the guy looked at me and said, actually not doing real well. And I said, okay, so what's going on? And he starts telling me about his, his wife is wanting to leave him. Um, just some family chaos has hit him. He's trying to rescue his marriage. It's not going well right now. And we sat at the back of the church and had this 50-minute conversation um, where he just shared what's happening in his life. Okay, this is what we're talking. When we say emotion, we mean something even like that, all right? He didn't get emotional and start crying in the moment, but he's willing to go there and be vulnerable and be transparent when someone asks him a question like that. This is what we're talking about. It's not just showing emotion through tears, but it's also just being open and honest about where you're at in your life at that point. So I want to give you some review uh, today. Um, today's going to be like a talk where we drill down just a little bit deeper on what we discussed last week, and then starting next week, we'll, we're going to talk about fear next week, and then sadness the week after that, and then anger the week after that. So today's going to be a review of what we discussed last week um, today. So um, there's two mistakes that people make when it comes to emotion. We covered this last week. The first one is someone who's ruled by their emotions. Now, we all know people like this, don't we? Uh, we know people that wear their emotions on their sleeve. Um, they're just very, very intense people. In fact, there's a quote I want you to see by C.S. Lewis in reference to these kinds of people. He says, emotional intensity is in itself no proof of spiritual depth. Now, some people who are like this, they're going to pass off their emotional intensity as spiritual depth. They're going to say things like, well, you know, I'm just a bit deeper than other people. I just feel things more deeply. I'm just that way. It's just my personality. And part of that can be true. But what I want you to know this morning, though, is that if you're just a person who just shouts at everyone, you're just really, really intense emotionally, and you're kind of out of control, that's not real proof of just some spiritual depth. If you're the kind of person that says things like, you know, people just don't get me. People just don't get who I really am. Well, that, that might be a clue that 
maybe there's some self-control issues in your life. We're not saying you should just display emotion to whoever and whenever. There's got to be some discernment and wisdom with that. But it's no proof of spiritual depth to be a person who's just emotionally intense all the time. The second mistake that we make is someone who stuffs their emotions, someone who um, doesn't show any emotion, never shows transparency, never shows vulnerability, and they just stuff their emotions down, hoping that they'll just go away. And there's a way that you and I do this. If It's impossible as a human to fully stuff your emotion because we are emotional beings. And so what will happen, what will happen is many of us will resort to things like TV, movies, music, even addictions. These are ways in which people cope who stuff their emotions because we need to feel something as humans. And so if someone doesn't feel things in real life, they'll escape and resort to other mechanisms so they can feel something sometime. This is what I think drives many people to go and get addicted to like certain shows and certain movies and not saying those things are bad, I'm just saying that it's a way in which you try to awaken emotion in you. You compartmentalize it over here so it's manageable. This is how we do it in our lives. So the rest of your life can feel devoid of emotion. You tend to stuff your emotions as a result of that. We covered a few points last week. We said that the church and culture teach us that emotions are bad. We've heard that message, I think, even in the church. We also said that we see how this message affects men and women. We said that men are probably more likely to stuff their emotion than women are, but I think what's happening today as a result of the men stuffing down their emotions is that women are now doing the same thing. Because what do men always say when they want to get another guy? They say, stop acting like a, what? A girl. And so girls hear that, and girls think, wait, so guys don't respect people who show their emotions, so if I'm going to get their respect as a woman, then I need to also begin to act like they do. And this is how the girls operate as well. And so we also said last week that emotions are tainted with sin, but they are not inherently evil. We also said that God does not just want outward obedience and and that feelings actually matter. We said that God doesn't want you just to go through the motions and just obey externally. He actually cares about how you feel while you obey. He cares about whether or not you hate sin or whether you love sin. He cares about whether or not you show genuine love and affection towards other people that are in the body of Christ. He really cares about that part too, not just where your outward behavior is, but also where your inner attitude lies as well. We also said that emotions can drive us to do some great work for Christ. The example I gave to you last week was that when someone goes into an orphanage and they want to adopt an orphan, do you think emotion plays a role in their decision? I would say that it does. That they don't just walk in and just say, well, in the book of James it says we're supposed to care for widows and orphans, so I guess I'll go do that. They don't just check off a list of, okay, in my life I guess I should care for orphans. There's something in them that rises up when they see that kind of injustice that makes them want to meet that need. And that is an emotion at work. And I would tell you that it's a good thing that God has given them that kind of emotion for that kind of 
kingdom work. Emotions can cause us to do some great work for, for Christ in our lives. I showed you a quote by a guy named Matthew Elliott. He says, emotions, good and bad, flowers and weeds must be dealt with, but they should never be ignored. And so instead of just trying to stuff emotion or push them down, the, the reaction should not be just completely and totally ignore emotion, but it should be, I'm going to deal with those things. That means if I have good emotion, I'm going to let it drive me towards some good kingdom work. If I've got some bad emotions, I'm going to let God reveal those things to me so I can open myself up for repentance and the, the work he wants to do in my life as a result of it. And so this is how this can work for us. I mentioned to you last week that, um, that I struggle with a lot of fear and anxiety in different parts of my life. I do. Just being honest with you this morning. And, and I have two choices when it comes to that kind of fear. One choice is to stuff it down. The second choice is to let God take me to a deeper place of repentance as a result of it. I can ask questions like, okay, what's behind that fear? And really get to the, the sin behind the sin, so to speak. Many of you in there, I, would, I would imagine many of you in the room feel this way. You, you've gone through maybe a relationship breakup, and instead of just stuffing your emotions down, you've got some things that God might want to cause you to have some deeper repentance about. So, so maybe instead of just dwelling on the emotion or just stuffing the emotion, maybe the response should be, that God wants to do something in your heart at a deeper level. Maybe you held that relationship almost like an idol. And God wants to have you confess that, turn from that, repent from that. And this is the deeper work he wants to do in your life as a result of it. Another quote by Matthew Elliott, he says, he says, you cannot change the emotion by dwelling on the emotion itself, but you can change the emotion by dwelling on and changing the beliefs that lie behind it. So this is the real hard work of repentance. This is the real hard work that we're trying to get to in this series is that you can't just look at these things and say, okay, um, just be ruled by emotion or stuff your emotion. I've got to let God do the work in changing the beliefs that lie behind that emotion in my life. This is the work that God wants, I think, to do in your lives. So uh, look with us at Second Samuel. We're going to look at the life of David today because... David was a very rare individual, I think. He was a rare man. Um, David was the kind of guy that was a man's man, but also a lady's man. So he carried a sword. He was a warrior, but he also played a harp. All right, so I don't know many guys that can pull this off. Can you? Like, I don't know many guys that can play the, the warrior, except for maybe Dan Fulmer at the back. Um, they can play the, the warrior role but also play the artsy guy who the ladies love role, right? Um, he was the guy that could, he could go kill like a thousand Philistines in a day, come home, wash the blood off his hands, and then write a poem. Like, I don't know any, anybody else, I don't know any guys that can do that kind of stuff. Do you? I don't know any guys like that. And so... This would be like combining a UFC cage fighter with, like, Justin Bieber, all right? Like, you know, this is kind of the combination that we see in David. I know I just ruined your image of David right there, but um, 
this is the combination we see in him. And so he's a man that is a man's man, but he's also got this emotional side. And so I think for the girls in the room, you can attest to this, that if you, if you see a guy that you think is somewhat attractive, maybe a six, okay, and, and he's a six, he's a football player, he's got some build to him, and then um, you take that guy, and now you put a guitar in his hands, right? You find out he writes poetry, right, ladies? Now you're like, okay, now he's an eight, okay? <laughs> this is how your mind works. I know how it works. So, so this is kind of like who David is. David's one of those rare guys who's a warrior. He's a man's man. But at the same time, we see a guy all through Scripture who's just very much in touch with his emotional side, okay? And so we're going to look at, I want you to see this morning, we're going to look at three snapshots of his life and just ways we see this play out in his life. And so we're looking at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, verses 14. And some background for this story before I read it. Um, this is a story where um, the Ark of the Covenant was this little golden box with some angels on top. And this was a very significant thing for Israel. This was where, um, where God was present whenever the Israelites were marching into battle. This was kind of like a portable temple for them. And so it was a very important thing for that nation. And before it would go into battle, no one could lay a hand on the ark or they'd be struck dead by God immediately. So one time they're transporting the ark. They're actually transporting it on an oxen cart, which is actually against the rules anyway. And uh, it's supposed to be carried by priests on poles, but they're carrying it on an oxen cart. And the oxen cart kind of wobbles, and the, the ark's about to fall off. And this guy named Uzzah, it's a great name, Uzzah, he decides to grab the ark and stabilize it. Well, what happens is God strikes this man dead right on the spot. And so you can imagine that everyone now is fearful of the ark. And so David says, he goes, I don't want the ark anywhere near me. I'm afraid of God's wrath. So he sends the ark to a guy named uh, Obed, his house, for three months. And so now three months is complete. And so now David has asked for the ark to be brought back to him. And so I want you to see um, how excited he is just to bring the ark back into where he lives because this is not just some golden box. This thing actually represents, this thing is God's presence coming back into where David is. This is God's presence returning back to where David is. So he's a little bit excited about this thing returning to him. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. It says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And so there's a picture of David going before God and dancing with everything he has. I'm not going to reenact this this morning, so don't ask me to do that. Um, but this might not sound like a big deal, but this is the ark of the covenant. This is God's presence returning back to David. So why is David's reaction this a big deal? Because David's a king, if you remember. Most kings are fairly formal, they're dignified. But David is so excited and so joyful before God and the nation that he just breaks out dancing before God. And he's wearing what's called a linen ephod. 
there are some people that think this is like ancient underwear. So, so picture this, David the king, who's supposed to be formal and dignified, is dancing in front of his nation in his undies, all right? Because he's so joyous at this art coming back to him. So just imagine, like, President Obama, all right? Can, can you see this? I mean, you'd never see that man, you'd, you'd never see a president dancing in his undies on television, would you? Okay, maybe Bill Clinton, but that's beside the point. But Obama, Bush, that, that wasn't bad. That wasn't bad. Everyone knows that. I'm just stating fact. So, so it, it'd be rare for us to see someone, because in, in those positions of power, people, are te- they tend to be dignified, formal. There's a formality to their position as the king. And so David is being totally undignified um, in his role as king because of how he is acting. But I want you to watch this. Watch how his wife reacts to this. Look at the next verse, verse 16. It says, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So as David is praising God, his wife sits up in her palace, looking down at him, scoffing at him in how he's acting. Why does she do this? She does it because she thinks, okay, kings shouldn't act this way. Kings are formal. They're respectable. They're supposed to be dignified. They're supposed to be controlled, steady, not embarrassing. And so what you see in the passage is, is that David was not afraid to show his passion and his zeal for God and for God's presence coming back into Jerusalem. David, as a man, was not afraid to show his passion and his zeal for God and his presence coming back into Jerusalem. And I want to talk for a minute uh, to the guys in the room because I know as a guy, we are often very afraid to show any kind of passion and zeal for God and for who he is and our relationship with him. We just are. As men, we are very restrained when it comes to showing any kind of passion or zeal in this way. Not not saying you should dance in your undies in public. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that you you are afraid, just like I can be sometimes, to show any kind of passion or zeal like David did for God and for who he is. We've got a king. This is a man's man. This is a dude of all dudes who is not afraid to show his passion and his zeal for for God. And so what, as men, what are the things that men normally get really passionate about? It's typically things that other dudes approve of. It's going to be sports. It's going to be maybe video games, maybe hunting, maybe whatever it is for you, that we typically will only get passion or show passion for something that most other guys approve of. And most guys don't approve of showing passion for Jesus, so we don't show passion for him as well, right? We're too cool for that. We get made fun of for that. And I want to let you know this morning that if if you're someone, watch this, if you're someone who, as a guy, if you're someone who says, 
really thinks in your mind that um, it's shameful to show emotion or passion or zeal for someone like God, who created you, by the way. If you're too cool for that, I want to remind you this morning that it just really kind of shows, in your effort to be tough, it shows how much of a coward you really are. It really does, because deep down you're really scared that they're not going to like you. And so because of that, you stuff it down. You don't want to show that because you're scared of what they're going to think of you. And I would tell you that a a true tough guy, a true strong man, is not going to care what someone else thinks about you. That's true strength. I would say that for a man especially, true strength is someone who's able to show some kind of emotion, especially for God, and not care what the results are going to be from that. Not care what the consequences are going to be for that. That's true strength. That's, that's true toughness. Like we live in a culture, I don't know where we get this sort of male bravado brand of masculinity, but behind that for most men, there is a coward back there. There is someone who is just so afraid they're going to be seen as a faker and an imposter. Someone who's so afraid that, that knows that if guys know what's happening on the inside of me, I would lose all respect for them. Well, you know what? Maybe if you're open, maybe you'd actually gain some respect because they would realize that, hey, he's just a dude like me. He struggles just like I struggle. And, and so I'm just going to encourage the guys, especially in the room, just, just stop playing that game. Stop, stop playing that game with your male friends, with your dad, with your grandfather. Stop playing the male bravado is the tough guy attitude and idea because it's not found here in the pages of this book. It's just not. We see David, a man who's not afraid to show passion and zeal for his God and for his king. I want you to look with me at... uh, the next, cha- next couple of chapters, uh, Sam- 2 Samuel chapter 18. Turn over there. 2 Samuel 18, verse 33. 2 Samuel 18, verse 33. Here's what it says. This is the background of this passage is that David has a son named Absalom. Absalom is a very sort of messed up son. He's the dysfunctional son of the family. And he was killed in battle. And David is showing in this passage his grief for losing his son. Here's what it says in verse 33, chapter 18. It says, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. And look with me at the next chapter, verse 19, verses uh, 1 to 4. uh, Chapter 19, verses 1 to 4, it says, It was told to Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in, who were ashamed. When they flee in battle, the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice. 
Oh, my son Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So as a parent, I can't imagine what it would be like to lose my son Landon. I can't imagine what it would be like, the grief you'd go through as a parent to lose one of your kids, to watch one of them die before you die. Would be probably the, the hardest thing to go through as a parent would be, I think, that situation. And so um, what we see in this passage is that, that many people, when they go through grief and sadness, we'll cover sadness in a couple weeks, but many people just want to stuff emotion because they don't want to deal with the, the full weight of what they're going through. And David doesn't do this. David confronts his sadness square in the face. He's not afraid to show emotion. This is the reaction we would expect to see when someone close to you dies. One of our pastors on staff here um, lost his own father about two weeks ago. And I went to the funeral, and as David, at the front of the room, shared about his own father and shared about his own father's life, he spoke through many, many, many tears. This is what you expect to see at a funeral. Someone's life's been impacted by this person. You'd expect to see that kind of sadness at a funeral. When um, you guys know that the, the guy who's from England, Stephen Chung, who's going to be going to New York City to plant a church, uh, he's been on staff here for a few years now. And about two weeks ago as a staff, we had a, a meeting with us as staff, all the guys on staff, and we got, had a chance to go around and just say some words of encouragement to Stephen before he left us as a staff. Let me tell you, there was not a dry eye in that room because we are kind of, it's kind of bittersweet. We're glad that we're, we're sending someone off in such a way, but it's also bittersweet because we're sad to see someone go that we're close to and that we love. And so it was great to see people like Gary DeSalvo and Danny Cunningham and Shannon Sword, other guys on our church, that are not afraid to show emotion when the situation calls for it. These are men that I respect and I trust. And men that are not afraid, as men, to get emotional when the time is right for that, when it should be happening, right? And so David is someone who understood emotion and knew, of course, how to grieve and how to show that kind of sadness. Look, look over with me at, um, at Psalm chapter 51, all the way to Psalm 51. You guys know David wrote the Psalms, right? Or many of the Psalms. Um, this was like the hymn book for Israel. And so I told you that David was a man's man, but also a lady's man. He knew how to write poetry and Psalms. And so look at Psalm 51. And the background of the story is that David stole a man's wife. What was her name? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. And David had Bathsheba's husband, what was, what was it, her husband's name? Uriah. David had that man killed. And so then David marries Bathsheba. David is then confronted by a prophet named Nathan in his sin. So David the king, man after God's own heart, is, is living in sin, active rebellion against God. And the prophet comes to him and confronts him in his sin. And Psalm 51 is what he wrote after he was confronted by this prophet. So if you ever want to just feel the weight of your sin, if you ever want to, if you feel like you're numb to your sin, my encouragement to you is read Psalm 51 because this is David coming out and saying, God, I repent and I'm sorry and I confess what I've done to you and to this woman and her husband. So look with me at Psalm 51, look at verses 1 and 2. 
It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So you get the real sense in this passage that David understands the weight of his sin. He understands that that he needs to have some sorrow for what he's done to this woman and to her husband. And I want to ask us this morning, when's the last time that you and I prayed like this? When's the last time that we really felt the weight of our sin in the same way that David feels it in this passage in Psalm 51? We said last week that sorrow leads to repentance, that godly sorrow leads to repentance. And there's a real sense in this passage here in verses 1 and 2 that David knows he doesn't deserve God's mercy. He knows he's not entitled to God's mercy. You see here that he knows that God doesn't owe him anything. When's the last time that you and I prayed to God with that mindset, knowing that we're not owed forgiveness, knowing that he doesn't owe us anything, knowing that his mercy is given to us out of his goodness, not because we're good, but because he is? When's the last time you and I ever prayed to God with that kind of attitude in our hearts? Look, at, look down at verse 9. Verse 9, it says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Again, David knows that God would be perfectly just to take away his presence from him. He knows that God doesn't owe him anything. He also knows, he says in this passage, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. David knows that his sin has affected his joy. He knows that that sin has an effect on us. Sin affects our joy for God. It affects our joy. It affects our emotions. And David knows this. And so David is not ignoring his emotions. Watch what he's doing. He is allowing his emotions to bring him to a place of repentance. We see this play out in this passage. And so we've seen three snapshots today of David's life. We've seen his excitement, his zeal, his passion for God. We have seen his grieving, his sadness as a result of his son's death. We've also seen him allow his sorrow to lead him to repentance in his life. We've seen those three windows into his life, and it raises a question for us, what happens if you and I live lives where we just stuff our emotions? What happens when we do that? What happens when when you're feeling God lead you to act and you don't act? What happens when you feel God leading you to repent but you don't repent? What happens when you hear the voice of God, but you ignore that voice? What happens in us when we do that or we don't act, when we feel God leading us to act? Another quote by C.S. Lewis, and this is a hard one for you to maybe grasp at first, but read this twice with me. The more often a person feels without acting, the less he'll be able to act, and in the long run, the less he'll be able to feel. I'll read it again. The more often a person feels without acting, 
the less he'll be able to act. In the long run, the less he will be able to feel. So do you see what he's saying here? That there's a cycle that takes place, that when you feel God leading you towards something, that if you put a halt to that, if you put a halt to that emotion and you don't act, you don't repent, you don't follow through on what God's leading you to do through that emotion, then eventually you will actually kill the emotion itself. You will no longer feel. You will shut down feeling in yourself. And so if someone feels God calling them to action and they don't act, the less they will feel. If someone feels God calling them to repent and they don't, they're going to become hardened towards God, hardened towards others. I had lunch about a month ago with a, a man I've, I've become friends with recently. His stepdaughter was going through some real tough times. So I had lunch with him and his stepdaughter recently. And some real traumatic things happened to her recently in her life. And as I'm talking with her, with her dad there about this, her statement was, um, I feel like I'm fine. I feel like I'm fine. And I looked at her and I said, I said, you know that's not true. Like, you know you're not fine. And she kind of laughed and said, yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. And what's happened in this girl's life is that the more she has shut down her emotions and the more she has not acted on God pulling her towards repentance, it leads to statements like, I'm fine, I'm okay. And I said, the problem is you don't feel anything right now. That's the issue. Because you have, shut, you have so shut down yourself, you just stopped feeling altogether. And this is where this girl finds herself. So the question this morning is, how do we avoid this same kind of mistake? How do we follow David's footsteps in these areas? I want to give you three things, and we'll let you guys go to breakouts. Um, reclaiming passion in your life. The first one I want to give to you is, um, I want to encourage you guys to begin reading the Bible with new eyes. That when you go to the Bible, don't just go through the, the motions of that, but read the Bible with new eyes. That means to read the Bible, understanding these are like real people, real emotions, real situations, things that God wants to reveal in you and bring you to repentance. This is what God wants to do through your reading of the Bible and your time with him. Read the Bible with new eyes. The second thing is pray to God with a new voice. That means be honest with him. That means you find yourself in those situations where you feel like, God, I'm not feeling anything for you. Well, let's talk to God about that. Let's confess that to him. Let's pray to God with a new voice, one that's honest with him, one that gets you out of the rut that you're in, one that is completely transparent and vulnerable with who God is and also with other people as well. And then lastly, to live on mission with a new vision. But the problem is, I think so many of us, especially People like me in ministry, we get caught in just the rut of the routine. And, and we know that we just do our programs, our church stuff, our spiritual activities, and we forget what God wants to accomplish in and through the church as a result of this mission that we're on together. And so hopefully those things give you at least a glimmer of hope that I don't want to fall into the same traps. I want to live like David did. Someone who is passionate for God, someone who understands how to deal with emotion and to live in that place 
and let those things drive me to him and to repentance. So with that, I'm going to let you guys go to your breakouts. Um, If you don't know where to go, if you're new, follow the hallway and you will find